there's going to be a lot of people at Langley and in Fort Meade who are going to be analyzing this intelligence. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, February 10th. Today, Julia Yaffe is here to talk about the aftermath of the Chinese balloon that crossed into U.S. airspace last weekend and captivated the country. What was it looking for? What's being recovered from the wreckage? And what will the Biden administration do about it next? Julia has the answers. And later, Tina Wynn stops by to decipher Donald Trump's first major 2024 campaign attack on Ron DeSantis, his presumptive Republican rival. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Friday, everybody. The Super Bowl is this weekend. I hope we can all agree the Philadelphia Eagles are the worst. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe. Not to talk about Russia and Ukraine, actually. We're going to talk about another diplomatic <laughs> incident uh, that went down last weekend. And that would be the Chinese balloon that was shot down over the coast of South Carolina after floating across most of the continental United States after Republicans incoherently screamed at Joe Biden to do something about it, even though it was like a 200 foot tall chunk of metal that would have probably hurt people if he shot it down uh, over Canada or the U.S., so, Juliet, Antony Blinken canceled his trip to China, you know, after this became public. Uh, we don't know how this got over here, what it was for. The Chinese say it was meteorological. <laughs> I don't know who believes that. And then something that jumped out at me, too, about all of this, in the State of the Union address on Tuesday, I just did a little control F of Biden's speech. He mentioned China six times, um, and he made a brief allusion to this. As we made clear last week, this is Joe Biden's voice. If China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. But most of his commentary about China was sort of generic, competing with China in the next century. Um, we're not going to cede our position in manufacturing or technology to them in any way, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I was surprised he didn't sort of make more of a muscular show about shooting down the Chinese balloon here. Can you just talk about like the diplomatic dance works in this case? I mean, it's clear that, I mean, the U.S. was not hyped about this. <laughs> but like they still have to like negotiate with China. Like what what is Blinken doing right now? 
so Blinken, um, we're taping this on Wednesday. And as I reported earlier in the week, and then the New York Times confirmed this today, I had been hearing during the beginning of the week that the State Department has been briefing allies and almost allies about this, uh, not just about the balloon, but the kind of the overall Chinese surveillance program. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're hearing from Joe Biden during the State of the Union speech is, you know, he clearly wanted to keep it focused on domestic issues because, as so many people said, it was a kind of soft launch for his 2024 run. And as we know, Americans are surrounded by two oceans and two friendly neighbors and don't much care for foreign policy. So he kind of kept it domestic. But he also, you know, back in November, he met with Xi Jinping and the two of them agreed to kind of keep things civil and to regulate the relationship so it doesn't spiral out of control because um, a confrontation or even a more heated relationship between China and the US would not be a good thing for anybody. But what this administration is also doing is seizing on this balloon incident because it was so glaring. It was such a kind of perfect visual image. Mm -hmm. They're seizing on it to kind of rally their allies and say, hey guys, we've been telling you about the threat for a long time. For a few years now, here it is. It's not just one balloon. It's not just five balloons. It's not just over the U.S. It's They're kind of everywhere. It's a whole big program that they have. And they're doing this because there's, A, a lot more takers of the weather balloon line than you would expect, because a lot of countries want to stay kind of non-aligned and don't want to get in the middle of like two giants fighting. You know, you could get hurt and they don't want to take sides and they want to mm -hmm. kind of keep out of it. And so being like, whatever, it's a weather balloon, whatever it was, we don't care. We just want to stay out of it. The U.S. wants to disabuse them of that notion. And then the other thing is that the Europeans have been a bit slow to wake up to the threat from China, according hmm. to people I've spoken to in the administration or people who have left the administration recently. And for a long time, they didn't see any threat. Then they were like, okay, maybe there's an economic threat. Meanwhile, the Biden administration was like, no, no, the economic threat is the military threat, is the economic threat, is the military threat. It's all kind of one thing. These aren't separate issues to the Chinese government. One hand washes the other. So wait, just time out real quick. Why, why is Europe so slow to come around to China being a competitive threat? To the West? Like, do they think that that's just US hyperbole and they, they're not really affected by any of the sort of trade disputes that we are? I think at first they were A, not interacting with China in the way that we were, you know, in the South China Sea. They, or except for France, they weren't interacting with China in terms of territorial disputes. Mm -hmm. They had trade relationships with China. So I was just in Italy. And one of the big stories there is that so in the north, which is one of the w reasons that Italy was so hard hit by COVID so early on, is that there are big Chinese factories in the north. If you drive around the, the Italian countryside, there are real estate signs that are just in Italian and Chinese. Oh, uh, there are direct flights from Wuhan to northern Italy. And there are actual Chinese p 
policemen and police stations in parts of Italy, which is nuts, right? And so like that is the extent to which they don't see them as a threat. The Italians are like, we're doing business, we're doing business. It's fine. Like, do your thing. Okay. And the U.S. has had quite a time convincing them that, look, do you really want the Chinese government to have a police presence in your country and have like armed police and police stations in your country? That's a little, do you really want them to buy ports in your country? (laughs) And then the other thing I'll say is that it's not just the Europeans, the Democrats were also slow to wake up to this, uh, in part because who was the messenger of this? It was Donald Trump. It was always Mm -hmm. China, China, right? Mm -hmm. That was like actually like, you know, yeah, it was like a joke. Fairness to him, but also like one of like even before he was running for president in 2015, something he's been like yelling about incoherently. But exactly. he's been yelling about China for like 30 years. <laughs> right. But it's like, right. And it was easy to dismiss because it was Trump. And I think the Europeans didn't take him seriously because he was also insulting them and undermining our traditional allies, our historical allies. So why would they listen to him? Mm-hmm. And Democrats also weren't really listening to him. And then they came in with the Biden administration and looked at some of the intelligence that had been gathered and were like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. So it's been interesting to see the Biden administration use this balloon, right? Like it's now out of the news. It got shot out of the sky. Now nobody cares. Everybody's moved on to the next thing. But the saga is continuing in Washington. The Biden administration is using it because it is, again, such a clear image, such a good example, something you can point to, right? It's not like cybers, it's kind of invisible, right? It's such a good image. You can just point to it and say like, look, they're doing this. There's another balloon right now over South America, right? And they're using this to rally their allies to America's cause. Yeah, I mean, that I I agreed with this take Mitt Romney, and he wasn't the only one, but um, he tweeted over the weekend. The amount of attention that's focused on this balloon versus like the amount of attention that's been focused on TikTok, like the security threat in everyone's phones is pretty remarkable. I mean, like the amount of media minutes used and spent covering the balloon specifically on television compared to the amount of scrutiny that's been applied to genuine concerns about TikTok and not just their data, but how they can influence U.S. public opinion. There was that big 60 Minutes piece a few weeks ago, which was really good, but like there's a balloon in the sky. I mean, it's, like, it's okay, made cool. like, for TV. It's know, made for TV. Know, it's made for, right? Which is why it's it's made for TV. It's made for Twitter. It's why it captured our imagination so much. But I also would disagree with Senator Romney. Like, yes, we should also pay attention to TikTok, but TikTok isn't the only app hoovering your data and not the only social media app influencing our elections, right? It's the only one that is not based in the United States. (laughs) Right. But what I'm saying is like TikTok is also not a red herring, but like a detail. It's like a tree in the forest, right? And it's much harder to get the American public and also people on the Hill, which like Mm -hmm. it's herding cats over there, Mm -hmm. to get them to focus on a more holistic approach and to articulate some kind of real China policy, but maybe we'll get there soon. So one of the last things I want to ask you is like in your conversations with the diplomatic world and the intelligence world, like it came out around this balloon story that balloons have crossed over the U.S. 
before in the Trump years, in the Obama years. Um, is that true? Trump years. So okay. there were three flyovers during the Trump years. And at first, Democrats used that as a cudgel against uh, Republicans who were like, how dare Joe Biden not shoot this out of the sky? He's so weak on China. Then you had a bunch of senior Trump officials like John Bolton and H.R. Mm. McMaster come out and say, what? We And Mark Esper, the former defense secretary, say, we had no idea about this. And it turned out they weren't lying. That, in fact, it wasn't until after the Trump administration left office did the intelligence community connect the dots and confirm that they were, in fact, these Chinese balloons, although there had always been suspicion that these were China, some kind of Chinese spy craft. Uh, that said, these were pretty brief flyovers. And what we saw, not this past week, but the week mm -hmm. before, was a massive escalation, this kind of five-day trip over the entire US. Well, actually longer if you count the trip over Alaska. Mm -hmm. That was a big step up. They'd never done anything like that. This would be like a brief incursion into Florida, a brief incursion into Hawaii, and then out. And last thing, is there are there any like next steps here? <laughs> I'm Biden. I'm like, okay, next steps. Let's circle back on Friday. Like what's happening right now with the balloon? Well, so they're fishing it out of the water, and then they're going to be analyzing it, and then they're going to be clearly putting that together with the intelligence they gathered as they followed the balloon in the sky. So they got a lot of intelligence as they tracked it across the sky. Huh. I heard a couple things that there were actual like US military aircraft following it, huh. hoovering up what it was doing. So now we have a lot more insight into this Chinese program. And there's going to be a lot of people at Langley and in Fort Meade who are going to be analyzing this intelligence. And eventually it'll get back to lawmakers and we'll see. Julia, who are the two teams playing in the Super Bowl? I don't know. I didn't even know it was this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, Kansas City Chiefs um, uh -huh. and the Philadelphia Eagles. Which Kansas City? Uh, Missouri. Missouri. Okay. Missouri, um, although, as Biden said last night. Yeah, he did. I noted that. Um, when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl the last time, I think 2019, 2020, Trump tweeted, congrats to the great state of Kansas. <laughs> um, that was an iconic sports take from Donald Trump. But yeah, there it is uh, Kansas City, Missouri, which is a lovely town. It's not a spherical ball. It does not count as a sport. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. All you need to remember, there are four downs and a touchdown is six points and an extra point is one. That, I'm that'll lost. get you through I'm the lost. Your Super Bowl party. I'm lost. I'm not watching. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. I'm going to read a book or something. All right. Bye. <laughs> when we come back, Tina Wynn talks to Ben Landy about the flame war between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Hey, everybody. It's Ben Landy here with Tina Wynn to talk about what is possibly the most interesting new development in the 2024 presidential race. Tina, until very recently, Donald Trump had mostly avoided taking direct shots at Ron DeSantis. That changed this past week. Can you talk a little bit about this groomer accusation <laughs> that Trump has been amplifying online? Oh, my God. You're just leaping right into it, aren't you? <laughs> Let's get into it. Oh, okay. This is, yes, yes, this is exactly what's happened. So 
For the past couple of months, DeSantis has been teasing in his weird desantis way a potential 2024 run. He's the most formidable candidate against Donald Trump right now in this Republican Party. So Trump's obviously not happy about that. Uh, leading up into the this week, he's been calling Ron desanctimonious, something that didn't really land. He's occasionally jabbed at, no pun intended, the COVID response that DeSantis had and was like, oh no, DeSantis has been actually bad at COVID and he caved to the liberal elites. And DeSantis, on the other hand, can point to his record of being one of the first, actually not the first person to lift lockdowns during COVID. And then a whole bunch of news comes out including this one poll that suggests that DeSantis would beat Trump in a primary. And so Trump goes nuclear and starts dropping all of these hints that Ron DeSantis, when he was a high school teacher in the early 2000s, did inappropriate things with the students he taught and started retweeting, retruthing posts that just said, is Ron DeSantis a groomer? And because someone else said it, Trump could just retweet it and go, oh, no, I hope this isn't true, which, you know, in MAGA world, the moment that you kind of allude to some sort of conspiracy theory or allegation that's gross means that it's true. He's been going on this for a while, but that's the craziest allegation to me because the term groomer has taken on this entire meaning of its own within the far right in that like anyone who promotes an LGBTQ plus agenda, people in the community, people who are their allies, they are quote unquote groomers, which is a psychological term used for adults who are trying to, you know, be pedophiles. Right. And we should we should just back up, first of all, and say there's no evidence or allegations that DeSantis did anything inappropriate per se when he was a teacher. This is just out of college. He was working at a prep school outside of Atlanta. It's not coming totally out of nowhere. The New York Times published a story back in November where there were a bunch of quotes from students and other people around town at the time saying that, yeah, when DeSantis was 22, 23, I'm not sure the, the exact age, he would occasionally hang out with students, kids who were 18, presumably, outside of class, that he would show up at parties where there were younger kids around. You know, it's it's a little bit weird. Again, there aren't any allegations that he did anything inappropriate per se. But tell me a little bit more about this terminology, groomer, and sort of what it is signaling to the GOP base in particular, and why this has so much resonance. Yeah. So again, just to reiterate to all of our listeners, there is no evidence supporting these allegations. This is just Trump running his mouth. But the term groomer has been thrown around by the DeSantis administration to push back against critics who are saying, hey, shaping the educational curricula in public schools and especially to shape how teachers discuss issues around gay rights, sexuality, yada, yada, yada. If you talk about this at such an early age, you are 
clearly trying to impress some sort of gay agenda and woke mind virus into the heads of these youths. You're indoctrinating them to be gay. That's sort of like how pedophiles groom children to accept their sexual advances. Ergo, you're a pedophile. This is obviously a big culture war issue, but it's ended up becoming a keystone piece of legislation and policy in the DeSantis administration. Um, I think people who listen to this might be familiar with the Don't Say Gay blow up, where he expressed support for a bill that prevented teachers from discussing topics around same sex attractions or human sexuality in classes below third grade. That was the one where Disney pushed back against it and DeSantis retaliated by trying to strip away tax protections and legal statuses that Disney World had. So that was like one of the first times that DeSantis made this hardline stance against how to discuss LGBTQ issues in the classroom. But this is a great issue for him to drill down and be like, I am the most MAGA. Look how I'm taking your concerns and implementing them in our schools. So for Trump to go around and take that term and throw it back in his face could be pretty bad. But then again, it depends on exactly the depth of the accusations they're going to throw at him. Right. It's, it's a loaded term. Um, he, Trump is leaning into a culture war issue here in a pretty gross way. Again, I feel like this is particularly notable because until now, the Trump strategy has been to mostly avoid attacking DeSantis. There, there was the desanctimonious insult that he had tossed around. But for the most part, it seemed like he was trying to avoid elevating DeSantis as his primary rival too early. So I was a little bit surprised, actually, when Trump took such an aggressive swing at DeSantis this week. What has the reaction been like so far that you're seeing on the establishment GOP side and also among the base? Are, are people sort of ignoring this? Do they think it's gross? Is there any sense that it's generated any traction? On the GOP establishment side and the more normal side of things, no one's really paid attention to it other than to go, oh my God, that's disgusting. As one of my sources put it, Trump already has this reputation for being kind of feral when it comes to attacking his enemies and completely loose with allegations and innuendo and doesn't particularly care whether it's true or not, just as long as he's able to flex on these guys and get some amount of supporters behind him. I mean, if you recall, in 2016, there was this moment where Ted Cruz was his main rival in the primaries. And Trump tweeted something like, oh, Ted Cruz is awful. Be careful with what you do, Ted. Otherwise, I will, quote, spill the beans on your wife. Who knows what that meant? Honestly, like who freaking knew? No, we, we never we never found out. But um, it sure was memorable. We, we don't know what them beans were. <laughs> but this is like just completely normal for Trump. And DeSantis, I think when someone asked him about it, said, look, people have made all sorts of crazy allegations against me. This is just another one of them. I think like the general strategy has just been to shrug and say, well, look, that's Trump being Trump once again. And I don't know, that could be a pretty decent pushback. But you also just don't know how much Trump and his team have in their back pocket on DeSantis. The DeSantis team has not really been engaging with this, it seems like. Um, he pushed back a little bit in a press conference the other day. On one mm -hmm. level, that seems smart. Like, why dignify it with a response? And if there's no there there with the groomer slur, and we have no reason to think that there is, then probably this does fade pretty quickly from view. But I also wonder if this is a precedent setting moment for the Trump GOP dynamic at a time where that relationship is sort of being recalibrated 
in real time. Like, like if you don't say early that implying another candidate is a pedophile is beyond the pale of discourse, are you just emboldening Trump to commit more of that same type of behavior? And it's a situation where it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Like Trump basically ran the GOP for about five years, maybe six. I mean, if we start from 2016 when he was the he ended up being the nominee to about 2022, where he was like, oh, I can totally dictate who wins these Republican primaries. They're going to go into the midterms. I'm going to make America great again through Congress. I mean, exactly who could they fall behind who would push back against Trump's behavior and scold him in a way that like drives a wedge? If not, I don't know. Honestly, I can't think of anybody. (laughs) Maybe DeSantis, but like, first of all, he'd have to jump into the race and be like, this is my vision for the Republican Party without Trump. Yeah, this has been one of Trump's tactics since the beginning is to sort of toss out these firebombs and provocations and then force the other side to look like Puritans and wrist slappers when they come after him for, you know, violating the norms of of political decorum. I also think there's some projection going on here, like this particular line of attack appeals to Trump because he himself has been accused of precisely this sort of sexually predatory behavior on multiple occasions uh, in multiple settings, including when he was overseeing the Miss Universe pageant. So a little bit rich for him to lob this sort of thing at DeSantis, but totally something that we've seen in the Trump playbook before. Yeah, I think this is a bit of a different situation, though, because, all right, I'm going to put on my sexism hat for a second. So just disclaimer, Trump behavior took place in the context of a beauty pageant, him being a New York tycoon media guy, a very, let's put it delicately, illiberal environment that a conservative member of the base, church-going, evangelical, what have you, would not approve of. If Trump can tie this to a nice white Christian girl being preyed upon by Ron DeSantis, that's a totally different story and that's a completely different reaction. No, you're totally right. I mean, Trump has a reputation as being a libertine, and somehow he got mm-hmm. evangelicals to go along with him. And say, okay, he's a, he's a sinner, but he's our sinner. He's going to fight for us. Whereas DeSantis, as you said, he has this reputation as a sort of clean, buttoned-up, country club conservative. And so if Trump Family can land- Family man, three any kind kids, of, beautiful wife. Exactly, exactly. And, and Trump, we see these sort of early tactics here from him in trying to paint his uh, presumptive 2024 rival as a, as a hypocrite. But we'll, we'll see what happens. Tina, thanks as always for stopping by and chatting about it with us. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.